Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Do you remember Chloe Cole? She gave her testimony a couple months ago here on Trending. We'll post a link to it on social media where she shared about her experience of transitioning. Her transgender crisis she experienced that she was, or should I say her parents were encouraged to transition her starting at the age of 13 and all the way to not just cross sex hormones but a dull mastectomy by the time she was 15 detransitioned about six at the age of 16 after experiencing severe suicide suicidal thoughts and attempts and her story is incredible as she comes to reclaiming her biological feminine identity and is telling the truth about the wounds of what has happened now she's been testifying before congress day after day in the last handful of months and she gave an incredible testimony before congress this past week but she also specifically addressed one of the parents who is being misled by doctors to transition her children so i want to share that with you a little later on during the show here because it's important especially with the news i don't know if you heard this is insane truly insane in the state of arizona there's a middle school that's being opened that is a transgender middle school for kids. That's indoctrination. Now, people may throw back, and I'm ready for it, that, well, Catholic schools are indoctrinating kids. Well, let's talk about indoctrination, and we will. But I think it's important to talk about what is true and what is not true. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail later on. I'm also going to talk about everything from boundaries to addiction. Sister Tina Alfieri will join me in a little bit here on Trending. We're going to talk about how forgiveness relates to setting healthy boundaries including when you have a family or a friend who is an addict. We'll also talk about getting support when you have a loved one who is an addict. You know, it, let's be truly, I think, blunt. A lot of people, I think, hide the truth of the fact that a lot of family members and friends, especially family members, tend to have, I think, secrets and that families try to hide where, you know, one family member is struggling with anything from alcohol addiction to drugs opioid addiction is very serious today and so often i find more and more about that estranged member of the family or the person that is kind of being hidden and not really discussed yet at the end of the day the whole family's hurting parents siblings from the wound of a family member who is an addict so how do you have boundaries in those situations but also how do we have boundaries in general so we'll unpack that a little later on here during trending joining me today will be sister out Tina Alfieri, who's an addiction specialist, a therapist, and a hermit and nun to unpack all of that in just a little bit. I want to continue our series on Theology of the Body. We're unpacking yesterday and today what Pope St. John Paul II refers to as original nakedness. We're talking about this original state in the garden prior to the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. We're walking through this whole series of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, unpacking all 133 catechetical talks. And original nakedness is one of those foundational points pointing to not just the sexual dimension 
and really not even focusing predominantly on the sexual dimension of the human body, but specifically on the fact that we are male and female in that comfort that is present prior to the fall in that nakedness. Again, not something that I think anyone really wants to do of having family dinner with your family members and no one's wearing anything. But what it points to is what is so fascinating that Pope St. John Paul II emphasized, and I talked about this yesterday on the show, is how the only way we have the state of original comfort in our nakedness is because of original innocence and how relevant that is to the state of the human person, both prior to the fall, but also now today. And how it, he referred to it as a boundary experience, one of those experiences that we need to come to have a greater understanding of, that there was no shame prior to the fall. And so in the Age of the Body Catechetical Talk 12, Pope St. John Paul II starts off by asking, what is shame? And he asks this because if we can come to understand what shame is and that it wasn't present prior to the fall, we have a better understanding of how perfectly innocent the human person was, the design of the human person, how it wasn't until the fall came when Adam and Eve, we discussed yesterday, clothed themselves with fig leaves, hid themselves literally from God who was walking in the garden with them because they were naked. They had, as Pope St. John Paul II says, in the sense of shame, a fear for one's own eye. That is a fear for one's own self. He says the human being manifests instinctively the need for affirmation and acceptance. So after the fall, suddenly there's this great deep-seated need, a deep-seated need on the basis of the individual for affirmation and acceptance. Isn't this something that everyone wants? And that this is actually understood at the level of the body, at the level of what is most important about part of, parts of our body, the distinguishing features of our body, that we need affirmation and acceptance as individuals and even in our bodily parts as male and as female. And that this is really appropriate to understanding the human person post the fall. That prior to the fall, that need for affirmation and acceptance wasn't there because we were so deeply rooted in a self-understanding and an understanding of others that we were so loved and loved God that that relationship with other human beings, our relationship before God, there was comfort there, not discomfort, not the neediness that is the human condition today. What is that? I think Romans 8, where St. Paul writes about how all of creation is groaning in a state of groaning to be reunited to God, to be a part of the new creation, to be taken back to that original state that God had intended with that perfect innocence, that perfect grace-filled life. Now, when reading Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, a little bit of background that I think is helpful, especially when looking at the topic of shame, is actually turning back to his prior work in love and responsibility. Prior to becoming Pope, Pope St. John Paul II, known as Carol Votila, wrote what is known as a very rich philosophical and theological text. He's known as a phenomenologist as well. He's very experiential in his writing. And he writes about love at the end of the day, love and responsibility, and how with love comes responsibility and how that's a good thing, which is so relevant to the culture we live in today, a culture that has disconnected 
from the family, from relationships, that, that is disconnected from marrying, from giving yourself a marriage or receiving in marriage. And so in Love and Responsibility, Pope St. John Paul II actually takes quite a bit of time discussing shame. And I want to touch just for a moment on some of what he says there, because I think it's relevant to what is said in Theology of the Body. So we often, I think in a 21st century mindset, think of shame as a bad thing, whereas historically, even within the tradition of Christianity, shame was a good thing. It was, it's in a certain respect, part of our conscience kicking in. And men and women feel it differently, especially with regard to the body. Shame is always connected to a person. And this is something Pope St. John Paul II emphasizes, that shame is deeply personal. It's usually in response to another, or it's regarding ourselves in respect to another. It's often even going to the depths of our thoughts. How ashamed would we sometimes be if people actually knew what our private thoughts are, not just what our external actions are or the external presentation of our body is. So shame at the end of the day is often what we tend to want to, con- we tend to want to conceal what is shameful and what is shameful can be bad, but also what is good is something that we can experience shame regarding something that is good, such as the body parts that aren't meant to be exposed because there's a sense of shame because of how we perceive ourselves, how others perceive us and how we can objectify others. And so in his work, Love and Responsibility, Pope St. John Paul II, again, prior to becoming Pope, actually says something really interesting about shame on the level of both men and women. He says, men often feel shame with regard to their reaction physically and mentally toward women. So there's that sense of embarrassment, shame with regard to how they physically react to women, but also mentally toward women. It's something that with regard to men's interior lives, you guys often it's one of those greatest secrets. You wouldn't necessarily want people to think how you are responding. But it, I think one of the great things and what it makes a man of character is what you do with those feelings, how you have a sense of self-control. And I think that's wonderful. I was talking to a young teenage boy recently, and he was talking about experience, experiences he has in his body with thoughts he has with regard to women. And he was asking his dad, is this a bad thing? Is this normal? And his dad said, it's all bad. You know, just don't do it. That's sinful. You know, you got to have pure thoughts. But we were actually talking about it. And there are a lot of reactions that the human body has and ideas that come into our head. But it's what we do with those ideas, what we do to try and refocus our mind, that if we indulge those thoughts, that's what's problematic. And this is where virtue enters in. And the whole conversation of shame is actually a good thing, because when we're ashamed of something, often that points to a need to enter into the realm of virtue, to course correct, to check how we are handling our thoughts and our bodily reactions to things. Now, that's men more specifically. Women more often feel shame regarding being objectified by others. So isn't that interesting? Men often feel shame regarding their own reaction physically and mentally toward women, but women more often feel shame with regard to being objectified toward others. This is why modesty, but also giving away too much too soon, both in speech about yourself, but bodily, can be so damaging for women. This is why there's no happiness, especially on college campuses, after the one-night stand, after the hookup culture the next day. There's often a great sense of dissatisfaction and guilt. 
But today, in the 21st century, we don't like the idea of shame. We reject shame as if it's bad, as if modesty is bad, as if discretion is bad, as if humility is bad. And so when we contextualize what Pope St. John Paul II is saying about original nakedness and the connection he makes to shame, it's significant because what he's pointing to is how innocent the human person was in thoughts, in feelings, in bodily reaction, in the sense of how one is perceived by another human being. All of that was perfect prior to the fall of Adam and Eve. And this is something that through the grace of Jesus Christ, we have to turn to reorient ourselves to what God has in store for us. And this is why the gift of the sacraments is so significant. Going to confession, receiving our Lord Jesus Christ worthily, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Being prayerful, entering into that evening examination of conscience, being shameful about sometimes the way we speak, our very behaviors. This is actually a good thing. And I think what we need to retransition, refocus that conversation and our own personal response to shame from a Catholic lens and from the perspective of how God created the human person. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. If you haven't been with us for our Theology of the Body series, don't worry. We're just diving into our fourth week, and we do a capstone at the end of each week on the podcast. You can subscribe wherever you catch your podcasts or at relevantradio.com forward slash trending. We are there. We're not there on YouTube anymore because I've been banned on YouTube. I still need to talk about that. We'll have to dive into that later this week. It's a whole ordeal. They're coming after me for a number of things recently. But Catch Our Theology of the Body series, we're doing a little bit each day, and I hope you'll read along. We'll post a link to Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, not just reading the commentaries. There are great commentaries out there, but I hope you'll actually read the text as you journey along with some of the key points that we're pulling from during the series. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. And joining me today is Sister Tina Alfieri. She's a hermit, a therapist, and an addiction specialist. And we're going to dive into the topic of boundaries and forgiveness, but also a little later talking about support. If you have a loved one who is an addict, what do you need in supporting yourself? I know a lot of families have that one family member that's struggling with a drug addiction or maybe you're married to someone who has a pornography addiction. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow here on Trending. Joining me without further ado is Sister Tina. Sister Tina, topic of forgiveness and boundaries. Those are both, I think, rather hot topics and uncomfortable ones for many people. You, know, you have the idea of forgive and never forget. Uh, you have this idea where some people say boundaries need to be so intense that you know we have whole generations of young people today completely cutting off their family members and disconnecting from anything that they believe, quote-unquote, toxic, which many people today even think just to have any familial connection is toxic. But you have a different perspective connecting the importance of forgiveness and boundaries together. Can you talk a little bit more about how important forgiveness is for setting boundaries in our relationships? Certainly. Thank you so much, Timree, for inviting me here. I must say, I enjoyed your insights you were sharing about theology of the body. Wonderful insights. Thank you. So, uh, I think you know, this is a difficult conversation regarding forgiveness and setting boundaries, especially where there has been uh, some trauma related to addiction and addictive behaviors. So, this is going to... It takes a lot of nuancing 
this is, I don't encourage people to do this or undertake this on their own. I encourage folks to have lots of support. People who have been impacted by anyone's uh, addictive behaviors, whether that's drugs, alcohol, gambling, porn, online activities, shopping, whatever, um, they deserve support. Uh, they have been through a war. Uh, it's like being in a war zone. You're fighting every day to make sense of what's happening in my life. Uh, my life seems to maybe have turned upside down. My loved one is not who I thought they were, or they have what seems to be an insurmountable situation that is just not getting any better. And so people involved with who love others who have an addictive disorder deserve lots of support. Um, I will share with you uh, the term that some people may have may be familiar with, the term codependent or codependency yes. has greatly fallen out of fashion. That seems uh, it is in the clinical world. It is seen as very negative and pejorative, and we don't use that word anymore. Uh, what we see, in, yeah, what we see and what we understand is that people uh, in these family systems or relationship systems with an addict, they are doing the best they can, and we do not do them any favor by stigmatizing them or calling them codependents, somehow um, trying to insinuate they are responsible for the addict's mm -hmm. <laughs> situation. That's really old school, and it's really fallen out of favor. So I want to get that cleared up at the so beginning. So just to clarify, because mm -hmm. you hear a lot with regard to addiction or even a lot in psychology today about codependent relationships. So what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is you're saying, no, there's an important role that families and friend, friends have in the lives of addicts, but that doesn't mean there aren't boundaries. Is that correct? You're not saying that correct. they're enab always enabling, because I think family members often get blamed for enabling behaviors. And yes, there are things that can be done to encourage bad behavior to foster them but don't we believe as catholics in the fundamental dimension of free will even in the face of everything we've experienced wounds and all exactly not only free will but this beautiful wonderful idea that our lord has given us about reconciliation goodness gracious i know i need reconciliation with God, with some of the people in my life who I have, you know, I have my own stuff I have to work through with people that might be a bit annoying or irritating to me. And that's my responsibility. So I, um, cutting people off, uh, using that term to just cut people off and cut people out forever, really not a good idea. Uh, it's not a, that that helps nothing towards reconciliation. I do think that distancing oneself via healthy boundaries so that you can work on yourself and learn more about how to thrive and survive and edify yourself so that when you encounter these folks, maybe the person that's the addict in your life, you are not overwhelmed and triggered by their behavior. So it kind of, there's a lot of work that people who are involved 
or love someone with an addiction, there's a lot of work that they have to do to get support and strengthen themselves. I also want to clarify, I am not advocating that people stay in abusive situations. That's kind of taking it to the other extreme. So, you know, you've got toxic cutoff where regardless of if the person ever recovers or not, you're just, you're done with them. They're X'd out of your life versus remaining in a relationship or a situation that is very damaging emotionally, physically, financially, where you're putting yourself at risk, or if you have children, the children are being put at risk of some kind of abuse. We're not asked to do that either. You know, the scripture that comes to mind when I'm working with families in this situation is we are called to be as wise as serpents, yet gentle as doves. And this is difficult. This is hard. We get sometimes uh, very upset and angry, of course we do, at the addict in our lives, and we want to punish. Hmm. Boundaries are not to punish the addict. We cannot set boundaries on others. What boundaries are for, boundaries are something we set for ourselves that help to keep ourselves safe. So it's a very delicate balance, a very delicate walk to make that differentiation between am I choosing not to see this person because I want to punish them and withdrawing my relationship with them to let them know how angry I am? Or am I withdrawing myself from this addict's life right now because I'm concerned that when they drink, they get physically abusive, or they have drained my bank account, and now I have no funds myself if they are a gambler or a shopaholic. So it's a very delicate walk, a very delicate balance. I encourage folks who find themselves in this situation, please, you deserve support. You are not an enabler. You are not a codependent. You are a person living in a war zone, in a tornado, and getting help is something that you're worthy of and you deserve to help figure out this whirlwind that you're living in. Mm. I want to talk more about getting that support if you have a loved one who is mm -hmm. an addict. And we'll come to that a little more. But I want to come back to forgiveness a little more and how forgiveness is a part of setting those boundaries. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is an ongoing process. So Forgiveness is both event and process. So if someone harms you or hurts you, let's say I, Timory, I kicked you. <laughs> so let's say I kicked you, right? And I leave a bruise on your leg. And I come back in two days and I say, Timory, I don't know what came over me. Please forgive me. And you would say, of course, Sister Tina, I forgive you. Now, that's the event. You have forgiven me. But, you know, I kicked you so hard and left such an ugly bruise that you're limping around for like three or four days. That bruise is growing. It's yellow, ugly, green. It looks horrible. And every time you see it, you get upset and reminded about what I've done to you. Mm 
or every time you put weight on that leg and it hurts and you wince, you're just like, what was Sister Tina thinking? She hurt me so bad. But then you might remember, oh, I'm supposed, I forgave her, but then why do I feel so upset still? It's because you're working through the process of forgiving. So forgiveness is both event and ongoing process. And just like physical wounds, I don't know how long that will bruise will take for you to heal. I don't know if it's going to leave a mark. I don't know if it's going to leave some impairment in the way that you uh, can step on it and carry weight. Emotional wounds have the same effect. I don't know how long your particular emotional wound is going to take to heal. I don't get to dictate that. The person who inflicted that wound certainly does not get to dictate that. So for all the addicts and recovery out there, you cannot demand that relationships be automatically restored, <laughs> okay? Um, you, you don't have a right to do that. Uh, only the person who has been harmed can do that. And so I'm speaking to the person who has been harmed that really to help your healing, to understand the process of forgiveness, and that you're going to go through waves of Yes, I forgave them, but then if I forgave them a month ago, why am I still feeling angry and upset about it today? Does that mean mm -hmm. I'm not a good Christian, not a good Catholic? Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing healing process that people have to realize. So it sounds like with that forgiving process, it's starting to set up those boundaries, which I want to come back discussing a little bit more, that as you're going through that forgiving process, you're still being reminded those feelings come up, that frustration. How does the boundary set in? We're going to come back discussing that and also getting support. If you have a loved one who's an addict in a harmful situation, we're also taking your questions on this topic. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. That's Sister Tina Alfieri. She's a hermit, a therapist, and an addiction specialist joining us here with her faith-filled professional guidance for dealing with boundaries, forgiveness, and loved ones who are addicts. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Sister Tina Alfieri is back with me here on Trending. If you don't know her, she is a hermit, a therapist, and an addiction specialist. We're unpacking the topic of forgiveness and how it's related to setting healthy boundaries. But also we're going to dive into getting support if you have a loved one who's an addict, if you're in one of those circumstances. What I was really fascinated by what you were saying, Sister Tina, that I think is so important. You hear a lot about codependency today and how from a Catholic-centered perspective with regard to psychology. It's important that we're not having this mindset of just cutting relationships off, but that any boundaries that are implemented are for the sake of the person that's being harmed, right, against the addict or whoever it is in that relationship. And that we don't have to, you know, have this mindset where we're always blaming maybe the healthier person in the relationship for causing the addictive or bad behavior. And I think that's so important because you hear so much about sever those codependent relationships. They're terrible. And how are you allowing for codependency to occur? And that does occur, but not to the severity to which 
the culture today says, just cut the person off. Now, something you were talking about with that was developing forgiveness and how forgiveness is a process and how you may have said, okay, I forgive you for kicking me, but the wound's still there. There might be anger or frustration. You might still be limping around. That pain is still festering. And so how do you implement the boundary within the midst of that experience, Sister Tina? Whereas on one side, we say, I've forgiven you. But on the other side, maybe there needs to be some distance as well. Perfect question. So uh, again, as just a gentle reminder, boundaries are something that we set for ourselves to keep ourselves safe. We do not set boundaries or use the illusion of I'm setting a boundary to punish someone. Um, remember, our, we're Christians. We should always be striving for reconciliation wherever possible. So I think it's important to understand that boundaries keep us safe. Uh, I do not have to put myself in harm's way. Um, let's say, for example, uh, that there is an addictive disorder and my spouse has um, encountered a communicable disease of some kind. I do not have to consistently put myself in intimate situations where I might contract that disease. Um, I can set a boundary around that. Now, I'm not punishing my spouse. I'm keeping myself safe. I think that there's a, for people, families and friends, loved ones of addicts, there's a really nifty little saying that I like to encourage them to remember and to make their motto, and it's this. I will do everything I can to encourage your recovery. I will do nothing that encourages the addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. So that sometimes helps families and loved ones to differentiate between am I helping the addict to recover or, or am I unknowingly, unwittingly encouraging that addictive behavior? So for example, you know, let's say uh, you've got a loved one and they're trying to go to AA meetings or NA meetings or some other 12-step anonymous meeting. And because of a DUI, uh, they've lost their license to drive. And they're asking, hey, can you take me to the meeting? Well, taking them to the meeting is going to be, yes, your personal choice, driving them there. Uh, is it going to be something you decide as a responsible member, mm -hmm. uh, person in that person's life? Yes. Is it going to be encouraging recovery? I believe so. Would it be encouraging their addiction? No, it would not. It would actually be helping them. So again, it's up to you if you want to drive that person to their 12-step meeting or not. But understanding that the loved uh, family and friends of addicts, I do encourage them, do whatever you can that helps to actually support their recovery. Mm. Don't refrain from doing things just to punish them or to make sure that they understand how angry and upset you are. You know, there's a place for family and friends 
to express their anger, get it out uh, for themselves, and to learn how to operate in this very strange new world of dealing with someone with an addiction. And family members and friends of addicts have their own 12-step program, their own 12-step fellowships that are free and cost nothing, where they can get support from other people who are going through the same thing. And that these folks have found serenity, whether or not the addict ever recovers or not. Mm. So this is important to know that, yes, you can find hope, you can find serenity. Uh, as they say in 12-step programs, recovery is an inside job. Serenity mm -hmm. is an inside job. I'm here to let you know, truly, uh, family members, friends of addicts, you can have peace and hope and serenity, whether or not your loved one ever gets clean and sober. Because your serenity and this is what you learn in 12-step programs, is not dependent on what other people do. Sister Tina, we have a lot of questions coming in about having that support when you're dealing with family and friends who are addicts and having those healthy boundaries. One of the questions that came in had to do with distancing oneself from someone. Does this mean separating for a time is the question? Again, that's a very good question. If it is based on safety, if it is a boundary that a person, a family member, feels that they need for their own emotional safety, physical safety, financial safety, yes. However, the goal is not to be doing it out of anger. Don't withdraw yourself out of anger, hate, resentment. And if someone does distance themselves or separates themselves for a time, it's for you, the family member, to work on yourself, to strengthen yourself so that you can offer some type of relationship, some type of relationship, because remember, we're not to be cut off forever. It's just like a time out. But during this time out, uh, the family member has a responsibility to be working on themselves. It's not the addict has to do everything and the family member does nothing except sit with their arms crossed. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. The family members deserve support and encouragement. And again, to learn to understand, am I doing what is right by setting boundaries or are the actions I'm taking uh, really to punish the addict, to let them know how angry mm -hmm. I am? Mm -hmm. That's where therapy is needed. That's where some good spiritual direction is needed. That is where some good 12-step friends in recovery are needed. It takes a whole lot. Again, this is very nuanced stuff to deal with. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio with Sister Tina Alfieri. She's a nun, a hermit, a therapist, an addiction specialist. And we are talking about boundaries and taking care of yourself in the midst of really harmful relationships that can occur, including addictive relationships. Susan from Canyon County, California is on the line. Susan, what is your question today for Sister Tina? Hi, thank you so much for this important topic. Uh, we have two brothers in our family in their late 50s struggling for about 25 plus years with drug addiction and they just are 
their own stumbling blocks. And so, as you can imagine, as family members, we are so frustrated, and we are at that angry and arms-crossed position. So thank you for making it clear that we do need um, counseling and support groups to try to get to that right place. So that comes to my first question, sister. Do you know of any Catholic organizations that help um, maybe with in-house rehabilitation? Um, these are individuals that really need to look inward and need counseling because of things that they consider their stumbling blocks as to why they're using we have not been successful at all finding something that's Catholic-based. What do you know, um, maybe a, a place where we can go to for resources? Go ahead, Sister. Certainly, yeah. Thank you for the question. Now, I will be very upfront and say um, I don't know of any Catholic inpatient settings either. What I do know is that very good treatment facilities can be also Christian and Catholic friendly. So I don't um, want people to get discouraged. You know, I always say for myself, if I'm having a heart attack and I'm in the emergency room, I really don't care about what the faith of the practitioner is that's trying to save my life. I just want to know how good of a doctor are they. Mm. When we're in an emergency situation, which if there's been addiction going on for 25 years and things are not getting better, this is, it's a crisis. It's an emergency. How about we look for the best treatment facility? It doesn't have to be Catholic. It can be Christian friendly. They can have outside supports that are allowed to come in. Maybe talk to them about can they have a priest come in once a week or once a month to hear the confession, to give them communion, to maybe do a Bible study or to have a pastoral visit. I think it's more important that we get a good clinical treatment team for the addiction and then build in some supports that are also Catholic rather than trying to find a real needle in a haystack of a very good Catholic inpatient treatment setting. Again, this is just me speaking. This is my opinion. Others may differ and have a very different opinion about that. I think that's great, and I really do appreciate it. You know, you want to see a 10 when it comes to quality if you're dealing with such a severe addiction. I will mention, because I am familiar with it, and that is St. Mm -hmm. Gregory Recovery Center. You can find them at stgregoryctr.com. And what I do know about them is they really are cutting edge with regard to very evident evidence-based science and research with regard to addiction and rehabilitation. And so that's something I'd recommend checking out. I'm not sure if they are, I think they have both outpatient and inpatient programs, but we'll post a link on social media as well as in the episode notes. And Susan, if you want to hold on, my producer Patrick will dive in and give you that information as well uh, if you're interested. But I really do appreciate that approach, Sister Dean, especially mm -hmm. professionally as, as well as coming from the perspective of a sister, religious sister, you know, to not necessarily focus too much on having a Catholic approach. And I think that that's sometimes some, a mistake we make and that sometimes our 
resources on everything always have to be Catholic. There are a lot of great exactly. resources out there. Exactly. We could just sometimes over-spiritualize things. Yes, absolutely. So for those who are wondering, though, the program, because I was just asked what it was again, St. Gregory Recovery Center is the one program I am aware of. It's stgregoryctr.com is the website. That's stgregoryctr.com. And their phone number, I'll give it twice, is 888-724-3342. That's 888-724-3342. And I know one of the problems is sometimes people find, Sister Tina, this excellent recovery program that's on the other side of the country. It's extremely (laughs) expensive to get to. And so I find often that will be a hindrance uh, for family members in trying to help provide this opportunity for a program. It doesn't have to be that recovery program per se. Can you speak a little bit to maybe searching out something local and what you would recommend looking for in that type of situation? Certainly. So most uh, cities or counties have a local database of social service agencies in their particular area. I would encourage them to start looking there um, and ask questions. Call up your local hospital and say, hey, what are the local treatment facilities in the area? Ones that don't cost a whole lot of money or ones that are state-run or county-run that accept Medicaid, that accept people with no way to pay. Um, I know for myself, I spent nearly 20 years working at such a facility. Mm -hmm. And so they are there. In fact, that's the majority. The majority of facilities are uh, county-run or state-run, and they specialize in giving treatment and help to people who have no way to pay. Mm, Excellent. Excellent resources. Those are great ways to look for a resource in your area. That's Sister Tina Alfieri, a hermit and nun and addiction specialist, joining us here on Trending. Thank you so much for being with us, Sister Tina, helping us with addressing boundaries, forgiveness, and addicts who may be in our lives as well. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I'll be right back. We're going to talk about an incredible testimony from a young woman who shared before Congress about how important it is understanding the harms of transgender so-called treatment. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back. I want to share with you an incredible testimony of Chloe Cole, who was with us a couple months ago here on Trending. We post a link to her testimony. She went through cross-sex hormones and a double mastectomy between the ages of 13 and 15 and then detransitioned when she was 16. She's about 18 years old now, sharing her testimony and being a true advocate for the reality of the harms of so-called gender-affirming care. We'll talk about her testimony before Congress in just a moment. But first, I heard something insane, insane yesterday. And I just want to mention it. Arizona is actually opening up a middle school geared strictly to LGBTQ ideology. And the details about the school includes where they're going to be using resources such as online programs to teach math, science, and reading. But in person, they're going to be giving in-person teaching on LGBTQ history, social studies, and more. This is outright indoctrination. And this is insane. And by the way, it's free because it's completely funded by your tax dollars. So 
This is for kids age 11 to 14, which, by the way, this is the age range where we're seeing a very large bump in the number of young people identifying as transgender. We know that the connection time and time again keeps being made to social media, impact of social media during that uncomfortable phase of puberty uh, as people are just coming on the landscape with regard to everything from Snapchat, Instagram, you name it. There's a lot of insecurity as you're starting to perceive yourself as well as a sexual being or other people could perceive you in this way. So I cannot believe this is happening. We need, if you live in Arizona, you need to push back against this because this is child abuse and it is damaging, damaging manipulation and indoctrination of children. And people, whenever I say something like that, will come back with the argument, well, Catholics indoctrinate. Catholics have Catholic schools. Yeah, but Catholicism is not a matter of opinion. Our Catholic faith is truth. God is our creator. He has a blueprint for the human person. He created all of the created world, and he gets it right. He has it right. While people in the church are imperfect, and there are plenty of Catholic schools that I will argue are lousy because they're not sticking with what the church teaches, but what the church teaches, what the church is, what the doctrine of the church is, is true. And I think that's important that we make that distinction. So let's come to this news story because I'm so proud of this young woman, Chloe Cole. She shared her testimony here on Trending. We posted a link on social media. She, again, at the age of 12, got a cell phone, got on social media, was uncomfortable with her body. She started developing early, had some uncomfortable encounters, started being pressured by social media to go through a transition, especially during covid age of 13, she starts cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. By 15, she's had a double mastectomy. As she's going through high school, right around 16 years old, she sees a child development class and she learns about how important and how wonderful nursing a baby is and the bond between mother and child, the chemicals that are released, how healthy it is for the baby to have that nourishment of nursing in the mother's milk. And she's devastated by the reality that she'll never be able to nurse. And so it was the catalyst for her to detransition, starting to realize what had happened to her body. And she mentions there were brief moments where the doctors at Kaiser Permanente, uh, or not even the doctors, maybe some of the nurses and others mentioned, oh, you know, you know, you might not be able to have children. And to her, as a 13 to 15-year-old young woman, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't really want kids any- anyways. A lot of people say that. I remember a lot of girls in Catholic school that I went to university with said they didn't want kids. The story's changed, and many of them have children now. How can a baby, a child, consent to not having children many years from now with a person they don't even know they will or will not be married to? I mean, it's kind of hard to think about having kids without thinking about having a spouse to help you raise them. Just saying. But here's what's important. Chloe opened with an incredible testimony talking about the damage of so-called gender-affirming care. She said, I look in the mirror sometimes and I feel like a monster. She said, my childhood was ruined. Why does she look like a monster? Because she's had all of these hormones that have changed her jawline. She has, she's had the double mastectomy. I'll just mention, this is a beautiful young woman, both before and after the damage of the transition, but she was exquisitely beautiful and was made to feel uncomfortable. Why? Because our culture tells women that you need to be perpetually hot and available, and that defines your value in society. 
And I really do believe this is why we have predominantly more young women than men who are coming out as transgender. They're sick of the sexualized culture. Now, Chloe continued in her testimony. She said, at 16, after my surgery, I did become suicidal. She said, I'm doing better now. She said, my parents almost got the dead daughter promised to them by doctors. She said her doctors told her parents that she would commit suicide and be dead if they did not transition her. She said, I needed to be loved. I needed to begin therapy to help me work through my issues, not so-called affirming my delusion that by transforming into a boy that it would solve any of my problems. She said, my childhood was ruined along with thousands of detransitioners that I know through our network, and this needs to stop. And she looked at the members of Congress and said, you alone can stop it. I really do see the front line of this battle is legal. And we're going to see from California to Maine across the country. There is a battle right now over what's happening with plain politics on the backs and bodies of children. Science experience, which we don't even know the full ramifications of. And we know some kids who are detransitioning who have to go to the bathroom on the outside of their body for the rest of their lives. But here... Here's a moment that was pretty incredible. Chloe, Chloe was testifying on a piece of legislation in the United States trying to help prevent kids from being able to be transitioned by physicians and therapists. But she had an incredible moment where another testimony was given by a mother of an 18-year-old person who identifies as transgender. And Chloe asked at one point, can I just talk to that mom? Because I really want to talk to her. And they said, okay, you can address the mom through uh, the Congress member that she was speaking to. I want you to listen. to. She gets a little emotional here, but to how powerful her testimony is, talking to a mom who's in that situation of crisis with regard to a child who's identifying as transgender. I understood that um, Mrs. Reynolds is scared for her child. And I just want to set the record straight that I don't hate her. I don't think anybody in this room hates her. Um, in fact, I, I see my own mother and my own father in her, and that she, clearly she dearly loves her child, and she's doing the best with what she's been given. And unfortunately, it's not much. And for that, I'm sorry. I mean, I think every parent deserves the most, the utmost grace and guidance with how to help their child. That being said, I don't wish for her child to have the same result as I did. I don't wish for anybody to regret transition or to detransition because it's incredibly difficult. It comes with its own difficulties and it's not easy. And I hope that her child gets to have a happy and fulfilling adulthood, however that may look like. Chloe's parents, along with this parent of an 18-year-old and woman, they're being lied to. They're being led astray. They're not being given much, as Chloe said. They, like many, for example, in the state of California, Kaiser Permanente has been ushering children as young as 12 years old into a transgender identity. The truth is, is that the suicide scare is a lie. Kids are not committing suicide over transgenderism. In fact, it's making them experience more of a crisis of mental health when they go through this so-called transition. Children's bodies are not science experiments and god created the human person male or female and we need to help in embracing that not in destroying the very bodies that we have 
This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Wednesday, I'm going to discuss a trend I've been hearing. Newlyweds who are struggling in their marriages, often expecting their first baby, or maybe that first baby has arrived. Suddenly, there's the discovery of a pornography addiction. A spouse, usually the wife, had no idea. We're going to talk about what to do in those situations. If you have a loved one, especially in those early years of marriage, in addressing and keeping together the marriage in the face of pornography. Join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.